The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. Give you the opportunity to make sure that you're in fellowship. Deal with all those uh, mental attitude sins that uh, uh, bothered you on the way here as you were fighting Houston traffic. Make sure you're ready to focus on the Word. and uh, God the Holy Spirit can take the things that we study and challenge us with them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have designed for us a spiritual life that is based not on who we are, what we do, not on works, but on grace, that you have given us, God, the Holy Spirit, who not only indwells us, but also works in us to produce the character of Jesus Christ. He is constantly working to transform us as we take in your word. He uses that to build in us a a uh, spiritual growth, spiritual life a relationship to you that uh, constantly advances and improves. Father, we pray that as we study the things we do tonight, that we might be challenged to press on to uh, spiritual maturity. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Hebrews chapter 6. In the last three or four weeks, which often seems longer because somewhere in there that got interrupted by a trip to Israel and a trip to Preston City, a few other things, we spent some time discussing the doctrine of baptism, which is crucial and important and part of the uh, teaching for the New Testament church. But we're going to press on beyond that phrase in chapter 6, verse 2, and go into the next part of this opening section in Hebrews 6. Now remember the context here. This is a warning passage. Now, a warning passage by nature is serious, that the author of Hebrews is getting the attention of his hearers because they have, as it were, stepped over the line and they are, their, their spiritual life is in danger because they have failed to take it seriously. They have uh, gotten involved in carnality. They've turned back to uh, Judaism or they have taken uh, the Word of God uh, lightly, they become complacent about not only learning the Word, but also applying the Word. And as a result, they are have a reversed course. And this is the emphasis in the warning, which began in 5.11. 5.12, he writes, For By this time you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to again teach you the basics 
of the Word of God, the oracle of God. And by that, it's not just academic learning. I'm sure they still understood some of the basic doctrines academically. But it's a matter of putting those doctrines into practice in their spiritual life. And this is where they, they broke down. Verse 13, he says, Everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the message of righteousness. There's a lack of skill. We studied that, that skill was application of the word. It goes back to the Old Testament concept of wisdom. That wisdom in the Hebrew mindset wasn't uh, the same thing as Greek wisdom. In Greek wisdom, it had to do with philosophy. It had to do with being able to think through abstract concepts. But in the Jewish mindset, wisdom was something that was very practical. It was being able to take abstract principles and doctrines and apply them to life in such a way that you produce something that was uh, valuable, something that was beautiful, something that honored and glorified God. He goes on to say that in verse 14, solid food belongs to those who are mature, that is, those who by reason of use. See, again, it is application. It's not just academic understanding of what the Bible teaches or theology or doctrine. It is taking those principles and consistently putting them into practice on a day-by-day basis. Then he draws a conclusion. This is where we have the the warning begin. In, uh, actually, the warning doesn't begin per se until about verse 4, but he draws a conclusion. The uh, exhortation section began in 11, and out of that exhortation comes the, comes the warning. So we looked at verse 1, and I'm going to review, if I can find it, the exegesis of Hebrews 6, one, so we understand the flow of thought here as we go from verse 1 to verse 2 and on down through 3 and then you know, the beginning part of 4. So he draws a conclusion, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. This is the New King James translation, but it lacks some specificity. The main command here is to press on to maturity. The verb is a present passive subjunctive. The idea in a present passive subjunctive in a third in a first person plural is where the author is including the audience in his exhortation. We all need to do this. He's not uh, looking down his nose at these rebellious believers. He is saying we all need to press on because any of us at any moment can enter into complacency, negative volition, and begin to regress in our spiritual life. So he says, let us press on or advance to maturity. The word is the Greek teleotes, indicating the goal of the Christian life is spiritual maturity. The goal of everything related to the ministry of the local church is to take spiritual babies and provide what is necessary through spiritual food through the teaching of the word that which is needed to press on to spiritual growth now that's the core therefore he is saying let us press on to maturity now in the english that is preceded by this participial phrase which should be understood as a uh, adverbial participle of means therefore by leaving behind 
the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, we go on to perfection. The, uh, the participle, which is translated leaving, is an aorist participle, and the aorist participle, because it's a past tense participle, precedes the action of a present tense verb. So that means you have to leave behind basic doctrine before you can press on to maturity. You have to be willing to go forward. It's a stepping out. It's a forward momentum thing. So you have to be able to move beyond uh, basic doctrine and basic application in order to press on to maturity. And the basic doctrine there is indicated by the phrase in the Greek, arche, which is the basis or the foundational doctrines related to Christ. It's an objective genitive, the related doctrines, the related teachings about Christ. So it should be translated, let us press on to maturity by leaving the foundational teachings about Christ. Then he gives an example of what those foundational doctrines, those foundational teachings are. And the first is not laying again the foundation of repentance. And this is the Greek verb katabalo, which has the idea of that which is foundational. All these words indicate the, the beginning stages. Uh, the RK, the elementary principles, are a foundation. Katabalo relates to laying a foundation. And then we have uh, the word repentance. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. You have a a negative and a positive here. The repentance from dead works is that they need to change their mind about the ritual in Judaism. In Judaism, it was surface. It wasn't an internal reality. This is why Jesus accused the Pharisees of being whitewashed sepulchers or whitewashed tombstones. They looked great on the outside. A lot of uh, a lot of ritual, a lot of religious activity, prayer, going to the temple. Uh, they did all the right things. They were in Bible class two or three times a week. They looked good. They had doctrinal notebooks lining their shelves. They could regurgitate the vocabulary, but there was no internal relationship that was the result of walking by the Holy Spirit, abiding in Christ, taking the doctrine, internalizing it, so that their thinking was transformed into the thinking of Christ. So there's a repentance from dead works and positively faith toward God, trusting in uh, God, trusting in the Word of God, the foundation of which is always grace. The Christian life is always based on grace. Then it moves on to the next set of, of basics, the doctrine of baptisms. And we looked at that last time because in some of your translations, that word baptisma is translated washings. And there's a lot of debate among commentators, and I had some professors at Dallas, usually the more reformed ones, who took this to refer to washings, that these were the ceremonial washings that were part of Judaism. But you see, this is why I made such an emphasis back in verse 1, that if these are elementary principles about Christ and related to Christianity, then this can't be focusing on Jewish ceremonial washings exclusively because we're not talking about the basics of Judaism. We're talking about the basics of Christianity. And so 
Jewish washings wouldn't fit. But there's a problem in that the normal Greek word that is used for baptism, whether it's talking about believer's baptism or John the Baptist's baptism or the baptism uh, of Christ is the word baptismos with an M-O-S. Excuse me, I've got these backwards with the M. the MOS ending usually refers to the, excuse me, I got that backwards. The MOS ending usually referred to the ceremonial washing of the Jews. The MA ending indicated the uh, general, um, the, the baptism of in, related to the different Christian baptisms or believers' baptism, Jewish baptism, baptism of Christ. So you had these two different words, and the word that's used here is the word baptismas, which indicates uh, normally washings. But it's in the plural, which is really odd. So the reason he uses the word, the the plural there, is because they have to understand the distinction between the Jewish washings and the legitimate baptisms. And among those, we studied eight baptisms. They have to understand the difference between John the Baptist's baptism, the baptism of Jesus, and specifically believer's baptism. And last time we, we went through uh, the use uh, or the uh, baptism in the book of Acts, showing how the apostles and the early church understood Jesus' command to the, uh, to the disciples in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, that when he said, go and make disciples by baptizing them and teaching them to observe uh, all that I have commanded you, that there was, that those two elements, baptism and teaching, were part of the apostolic mission. And if you start in Acts chapter 2, when Peter first preached the gospel of grace, and you had, and it's the birthday of the church, and the Holy Spirit descended, and you had the first baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. You had th- he had 3,000 converts, and immediately they baptized all 3,000 converts. And we just walked our way through Acts. We looked at uh, we looked at uh, Philip the evangelist, both in Samaria and then down in uh, in the Negev as he. Uh, witnesses, explains the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch, and as soon as the Ethiopian eunuch understands the gospel and trusts in Christ, uh, he says, well, let's find some water and get baptized. And there's this immediacy there that uh, is, is, shows how they understood that commandment. And then you get to Matthew 19, uh, excuse me, Acts 19, where Paul is in Ephesus, and he runs into these disciples from John the Baptist. And he asks them, by what baptism were you baptized? And they said, John's. And he says, well, don't you know about the Holy Spirit? And they said, no, we don't know about the Holy Spirit. They didn't know about Jesus. And so he explained the gospel to them and immediately took them down and baptized them in the name of Jesus. And so all through here we see this, number one, there's an immediacy to baptism, but we have to understand that all of these people that we were talking about so far in Acts were those who already had a pretty good understanding of Old Testament doctrine and theology. They weren't uh, brand new, (coughs) untaught pagans. But we also saw that when Paul was in Corinth, he baptized several families. He didn't do most of the baptism work. He left that to his assistants. 
And when he wrote the epistle to the uh, to the Corinthians, he said, "Well, I thank God I didn't baptize uh, most of you." And it wasn't that he was uh, upset that he didn't uh, baptize they baptized any of them. He said, "I'm glad I didn't baptize many of you because they were creating this uh, division based on who got baptized by whom." Then I pointed out that when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he wrote it at approximately the same time that the events in Acts 19 took place, when he baptizes those disciples of John the Baptist. And what do we learn from that? We learn that when Paul later on in 1 Corinthians 1 says that I was sent not to baptize but to uh, teach, to proclaim the gospel, that some people have taken that to mean, well, you see, Paul wasn't supposed to baptize. That's not why he was sent. He was sent to teach. Well, let's think about this a minute. If he wasn't sent to baptize, if, that, if what he is saying is, I wasn't sent to baptize at all, I was just sent to teach, then he wouldn't have baptized at all. But he did. He baptized at least three families specifically mentioned in the Scriptures. Secondly, if he wasn't sent to baptize at all, why does he make such an issue out of believers' baptism with the disciples of John the Baptist in Acts chapter 19, the same time he's writing to the Corinthians dealing with the the issue there? In other words, the evidence shows that for the Apostle Paul, baptism was important. It wasn't his primary mission. That's what he's talking about in Acts in First uh, Corinthians chapter one, it's not my primary mission. It's not a, he is not rejecting it as a secondary or important objective, but it wasn't his primary mission. He delegated that responsibility to his disciples. So the conclusion was there's no basis anywhere in the New Testament to indicate that believers' baptism was a transitory, temporary, or transitional. Uh, uh, ordinance that it is still in effect for today. So the phrase that we see here in Hebrews six two related to the doctrine of baptisms is that this this delineation needed to be made. This distinction between the Old Testament washings, ritual washings of the Jews, which pictured cleansing, and the New Testament believers' baptism, which is a picture of what God the Holy Spirit does to the believer in identifying him with the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and in cleansing him in the process of regeneration. Titus 3.5 says it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saves us. How? By the washing of regeneration and renewal by means of the Holy Spirit. So the whole imagery that Paul uses in Titus 3.5 when he's talking about regeneration brings in the imagery of baptism. And so these things are connected. There's a, it's, it's the whole concept of baptism by the Holy Spirit, identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, positional truth. These are real easy to understand doctrines, aren't they? They're just real concrete. They're the, they're the, we just you know move right through them, right? No, they're difficult. That's why God gave us this ritual of water baptism is because it encapsulates this whole process so that every time we see it, 
if it's properly done and properly taught, we are reminded of the reality that took place in our own lives when we trusted Jesus Christ as Savior and where God the Holy Spirit was used to cleanse us and to enter us into union with Jesus Christ. But this is just basic stuff, according to the writer of Hebrews. The next thing is laying on of hands. Now, what is meant by laying on of hands? Now, this is really interesting. And when you look at the scripture, the laying on of hands has several different uh, (coughs) uses. It was done when healing uh, was the issue in Mark 5.22 and Acts 28.8. When someone was being healed, then the person who was healing them would lay hands on them. It was a picture of identification. That's what it was. That's the ultimate picture there. Just as baptism is identification, what you have when one person laid hands on another person was he was identifying with that with that person. You had the same thing happen in the Old Testament when somebody was coming to the temple, they were bringing a sacrifice, they would do what? They would lay their hands on the lamb or the goat, and this was a sign that they were identifying their sins with that sacrificial animal. So once again, laying on of hands uh, like baptism indicated identification. But since we have here in, in Hebrews 6.2 the association of the doctrine of baptisms and then the next statement is laying out of hands, we can see that the writer is pairing these together because in the book of Acts there is a connection between baptism and laying on of hands. And when when the uh, apostles would baptize someone, that's what they did, was they laid hands on them in the sense that there was this identification indicating that uh, they had, uh, the apostle had understood this person to have trusted in Christ as their Savior, and so now they were identified together in uh, the body of Christ. So that, again, it just reinforced this whole idea that every single believer at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone is entered into the body of Christ, and we are now one in the body of Christ. There is a unity, a constitutional unity among all believers, whether you're an American believer or whether you're British or whether you're Iranian. And incidentally, I'm hearing a lot of reports recently about a tremendous underground movement uh, in Iran where hundreds of Iranians are coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. In just the last week, it seems, I've gotten three or four different reports. Doug was telling me about an Iranian believer at uh, his work that it goes to a church where there's a whole group of Iranian believers who go back to Iran a couple of times a year and are involved in witnessing and involved in evangelism. And then I was talking with Charlie Clough uh, last week. We've been doing some work on the pastor's conference for next year, which is going to have a heavy emphasis on Islamic evangelism. And he was telling me about this, an elder that he's mentioned several times, who's a, an Iranian and this elder at his church, who's an Iranian, keeps up with many family and friends who are still in Iran. And he was telling Charlie last week 
that this is the biggest news item in the world today, and the news media is just oblivious to it, but that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of Iranians who are trusting in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And then in the midst of all of that, I've got, I received this month's or this quarter's newsletter from the publication Voice of the Martyrs, which is a publication put out uh, dealing with uh, Christians in areas where there's a lot of uh, suffering persecution for, for Christians. And in this edition, all of the articles were focusing on what was going on today in Iran. So this is something to pray about. Now, I mentioned, I know I got your curiosity up. We're going to, uh, we've got a couple of speakers nailed down for the pastor's conference next year. On um, a couple of nights, we're going to have Pat Kate speak. Some of you know who Pat Kate is. He's uh, originally from Houston. He married uh, the daughter of Dick Sumi. Dick Sumi was, Dr. Sumi was a chaplain at Dallas Seminary when I was there. Uh, Dr. Sumi was the third pastor of Brack Church. And uh, he's and Pat Kate's been supported as a missionary by uh, Baraka, by Bethel, Spring Branch. I think several other churches here have all supported him. He's in his he's probably late 60s or early 70s now. He was in Iran for at least 15 or 20 years in Tehran when he and his family had to evacuate in 1979, and he has been operating out of Pennsylvania the last, uh, I don't know, 15 or 20 years as the executive president of a worldwide mission to Muslims. So he will be speaking, and then I also have secured Ergen Kanner, who is the president of Liberty Seminary. He and his brother are well-known. They both have their PhDs in systematic theology, and they they were raised Muslim, and they have written a number of books dealing with Islam, Christianity. Right now they're writing an even, a commentary on the Quran from an evangelical Christian perspective, which is going to be quite a useful tool for uh, believers who are trying to witness to Muslims. So we have that to look forward to. I don't know how I got off onto that, but that gives us a little insight as to some things that are coming up. But there's a lot of things going on around the world that we need to pray for, the, that people are learning the gospel, hearing the gospel. Somebody I talked to this week, I don't know who it was. One day I had a bunch of conversations, and afterwards I couldn't remember who told me this, that in Afghanistan right now they're having the highest number of, first, of conversions at the first hearing of the gospel of any country in the world. What that means is that they're, they're just responding the first time they hear the gospel, they're trusting Christ as their Savior. Usually, uh, those who study these things say it, most people respond after they've heard the gospel explained four or five times. They need the repetition. But in Afghanistan, there's a big movement. Now, why is that? I think it's because, and the reason that most people who study these things say is because it's such an environment of hate and hostility and repression that people are getting sick of that and they're responding to the love of the gospel and the love of God as opposed to this hateful, tyrannical, uh, fatalistic Allah of Islam. So, back to our passage. 
the laying on of hands indicates this identification of the individual with the person who is laying on hands and it was associated with baptism by the apostles in many of the passages for example in Acts chapter 8 17 to 19 when Philip is in Samaria Acts chapter 9 verse 12 after Paul's salvation uh, Acts 9 12 and 17 and in Acts 19 6 Paul lays hands on those uh, disciples of John the Baptist who represent Old Testament saints also laying on of hands would take place when a <clears throat> an officer of the church, a pastor was ordained, a, a deacon was ordained, and it indicates identification that there is a unity between the person laying on hands and the person who is having hands laid on. And that's the point I was bringing out earlier, is the unity of the body of Christ, the worldwide body of Christ, is still being uh, put together by God the Holy Spirit. So you have passages in the pastorals, such as 1 Timothy 4.14 and 1 Timothy 5.22, 2 Timothy 1.6, that all speak about laying on of hands. But what we have here in, in Hebrews, the mention of laying on of hands in such close proximity to baptism would indicate this identification that is very similar to what happens in, in baptism, that what baptism is a picture of is this identification with Christ and the identification of the new convert with the body of Christ. So this is all basic, basic, basic doctrine. Then we come to the next phrase in verse 2, the resurrection of the dead. Now this is an interesting phrase, and I did a little work on it today, because what you have in the Greek is a plural noun for the word dead. And some have been tempted to translate that resurrection from the dead ones. Actually, the reason it's plural in the Greek was that this was just the idiom. In, in English, the noun dead is a collective noun, sort of like the word crowd. You have a singular crowd, but a crowd is made up of a multiplicity of people. You don't talk about crowds unless you're talking about, well, this crowd and this group over here and that crowd and that group over there. Uh, so you have in English collective nouns. Every language has collective nouns. In Greek, the idiom was to speak about all of the dead with a plural noun, but in English, we would translate it with a singular noun because by translating it the dead, we understand that's a collective noun referring to all of the dead. And this mention of the resurrection of the dead is, is a reference to the future resurrection of everyone. Notice, we move from the foundational doctrines related to uh, <coughs> salvation, repentance from dead works, and faith toward God. Then the second pair is the doctrine of baptisms, laying on of hands, and those connect together. And then the last two focus toward the future, the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. There is a resurrection and then there is judgment. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 42 and following is the central passage in the New Testament dealing with the doctrine of a resurrection. There we read, so also is the resurrection of the dead. We have almost the same phraseology there. Resurrection plus the plural of the word dead. 
the body is sown in corruption. What we have in verse 42 and following is the general principle of resurrection. The body, referring to the physical body, is sown in corruption. We're all born fallen. We are in Adam. Our bodies are subject to the physical uh, consequences of sin. Our body is sown in corruption. It must be raised in incorruption. The uh, corrupt mortal human body cannot go into heaven. So it is sown in corruption, but it is raised in incorruption. We will receive a an incorruptible resurrection body at the rapture. Verse 43, it is sown in dishonor. That is, our physical body is sown in dishonor because of sin, but it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And then Paul makes the statement, there is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. What does he mean by that? He means the natural body in context is related to the... Let's back up the slides. It's related to the body in dishonor. It's related to the body in weakness. It's related to the body in corruption. See, he builds these parallels all the way through. You have corruption for the natural body and then incorruption for the resurrected body. Dishonor for the natural body. Glory for the resurrection body. Weakness for the natural body. Power for the resurrection body. Natural body, spiritual body fits that pattern. So he's not talking about a natural body in the sense of a uh, of a of a physical mortal body, and the spiritual body is like some ephemeral ghost mist floating through the air, like Casper the ghost. It is a spiritual body in that it is related to the dimension of heaven. And then we read verse uh, verse forty five, and so it is written: the first man Adam became a living being; the last Adam, a life giving. Spirit. So there is a distinction between the present body and the future body. However, Paul concludes the spiritual body is not first but the natural and afterward the spiritual. There's a necessary progression. The first man was of the earth made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. So the resurrection body is going to have certain features similar to our present corporeal body, but it is going to have other features and characteristics that are quite a bit different, which will allow us to live in the heavenly dimension. Verse 48, as, the, as was the first man, the skip of any verses? No. Verse 48, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust, that is, the continues the contrast between the mortal, corporal, fallen body that we're born with and the heavenly. Verse 49, And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also, bore the, uh, also bear the image of the heavenly man. So 1 Corinthians 15:42-49 emphasizes the reality of resurrection. Now, when we come to that last phrase, I want to tie these two together. When we come to that last phrase, it relates to eternal judgment. 
Now, when we talk about what the Bible teaches about eternal judgment, we have to recognize, first of all, that every human being is born under condemnation. This is seen in John 3.18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. You see, at the instant of birth, every single human being is born with the imputation of Adam's original sin and guilty of Adam's original sin and under condemnation. The only thing that moves a person from condemnation to acceptance is belief in Jesus Christ according to this passage. So we're told that he who believes in him is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So every human being is born under condemnation and would remain under condemnation until they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if they die physically before they put their faith in Christ, they are still in a status of condemnation. This is what the writer of Hebrews refers to in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28. Incidentally, this is a great verse to use against the whole doctrine of reincarnation, which is nothing more than than uh, pagan recycling. As it, appointed, as it is appointed to men to die once, not again and again. You're not going to die and come back as a lizard and then die and come back as a mouse and then die and come back as a, as a horse. And, and, of course, in the Japanese scheme of things, the very worst thing that can happen is that you die and come back as a woman. That's worse than coming back as a lizard or a mouse or anything else. So uh, they haven't quite made it into the... Uh, 20th century when it comes to understanding the equality of the sexes, I guess. But when speaking of reincarnation, you have to realize that the whole doctrine of Hindu reincarnation has been sanitized for the uh, American public because most Americans think of that if they get reincarnated, they're just going to come back as another human being. They might not have all the uh, benefits that they have now. They might have to come back as a as uh, you know, somebody who lives down in the ghetto somewhere. They might have to come back as somebody's living in a third world country. But that's not the real doctrine of, of reincarnation. The real doctrine of reincarnation, you come back as lower life forms. You come back as, as lizards and snakes and mice and uh, cows and all these other things. That's why some animals can't be eaten because you might be eating your grandfather. But Scripture teaches it's appointed for men to die once. And after this, the judgment. Now, if you die physically, and then you're going to be judged, what has to happen in between? Well, you've got to come back to life somehow so that you can stand before the judge and be evaluated. And that's why the writer of Hebrews here in verse 2 connects the resurrection of the dead. It's not talking about just believers. It's talking about all are going to be resurrected in the different resurrections, but all will be resurrected and all will face eternal judgment and eternal valuation. Believers will face the judgment seat of Christ. Unbelievers will face the great white throne judgment. 
Every unbeliever remains in the grave until the end of the millennial kingdom when they are resurrected. Now, Hebrews 9.27 says, As it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart for sin for salvation. That's the resurrection of unbelievers. I mean, resurrection of believers. For church-age believers, that occurs at the rapture, which is what we've been studying on Sunday morning. Every church-age believer, uh, alive or dead, is taken to be with the Lord in the clouds at the end of the church age at the event known as the rapture. Old Testament saints and tribulation martyrs are resurrected at the end of the tribulation period. That's the, uh, sec- that's the second stage in the first resurrection. But unbelievers get resurrected only once, and that's at the end of the millennial kingdom. And in Revelation 20, 12 through 15, gives us the description of what happens at the great white throne judgment. John says, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were open. Now this judgment does not include, at least in the context, any unbelievers. Now somebody asked me the other morning, said, well, when are... When do millennial saints get their resurrection body? I mean, the ones who are born during the millennium have physical corporeal bodies. When do they get their resurrection body? By inference, they get it at this time. The scripture doesn't say. When are they evaluated for rewards or blessings? Well, it would probably be at this time, but that's just an inference. The scripture never addresses that particular issue never states when that occurs. So we just have to have to infer that. What we do have described in Revelation twenty, twelve through fifteen is the judgment of unbelievers. I saw the dead, small and great standing before God, the books were open. Now these are the books that list all of the works, all the production of these individuals. Now when we look at the end of this, what we see is they're evaluated. The end of verse 13, they're, each one is evaluated according to his works. Now, the term works isn't a technical theological term. You have good works, you have bad works. You have, as believers, we have works that are done by the Holy Spirit, and we have works that are done in the flesh. But works is just a generic term for production. So what happens at the great white throne judgment is that every individual that's there as unbelievers, is evaluated according to their production. In other words, how good is your production? You have to have three things in order to get into heaven. Three things. Number one, you have to have your sin paid for. The penalty of sin has to be paid for. The second thing that has to happen is that you have to possess the righteousness of God. You can't get into heaven without it. God's perfect righteousness can't have fellowship with relative righteousness or negative righteousness. The third thing that a person has to have is is eternal life. Now, when Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world, he paid the penalty for every single sin in history. He, he, in actuality. Now, see, there, this, this all, always gets into a little bit of discussion about 
the extent of the atonement, whether Jesus died for everybody without distinction, without exception, whether he died for only those who are going to be saved. Now, follow me on this. One of the first questions that comes up is, what kind of substitution was it? If Jesus, is it a real substitution? Did Jesus really die for the sins of the unbeliever who is always an unbeliever? Well, if he always remains an unbeliever, never trusts Christ as his Savior, and if Jesus died for his sins, why isn't he in heaven? Ah, That's what I'm going to answer. He doesn't get to heaven just because his sins are paid for, because remember, three things have to happen. His sins have to be paid for, he has to have perfect righteousness, and he has to have eternal life. When Christ dies for the sins of the world, some theologians came along in the context of the uh, Reformation and said, well, Christ, we, we can't accept the fact that Christ died only for the elect because there's too many passages that say that Christ died for everybody. So there was a Calvinist theologian at the uh, seminary in Salmour, France, by the name of Moses Amiro. Amiro is spelled A-M-Y-R-A-U-T. Amiraut. No. And, and so his the, theological position is known as Amiraldianism. And the Amiraldian position is nothing more than hypothetical atonement. That means Jesus died for you if you believe. But if you don't believe, he didn't die for you. And you go to hell for your sins. Now, there's a problem with that. Classic Amaraldianism is usually the position that people take who are called four-point Calvinists. And they will usually express it this way, that Jesus Christ's death was sufficient for everybody, but it was effective only for the elect, only for the saved. And I've heard people on both sides of the argument use that definition, which makes it confusing. But if, let's say, I go all the way through life and I don't trust in Christ as my Savior. And so I die, and I'm, uh, before, before I die, somebody uh, explains the gospel, gospel to me. They say, Christ died for your sins. I say, well, I don't believe that. Then I go to hell. I'm in the lake of fire. It's after the great white throne judgment. And somebody says, why are you here? I said, well, Christ didn't die for my sins. I'm here for, I'm paying the penalty for my sins. And that would mean that Christ didn't die for them. If I had accepted the payment before I died, then it would have been applied to me and uh, he would have died for my sins. But if I don't accept it and I go to the lake of fire, if I'm going to the lake of fire for, to pay the penalty for sin, then that means Christ didn't die for my sins. This is sort of a backdoor limited atonement. Now, I'm going to resolve this problem by the way I'm explaining this. When we break down salvation into those three issues, the first is the penalty for sin, the second is, is uh, possession of righteousness, and the third is, is eternal life. What happens is that Christ truly and actually substitutes for everybody. He pays their penalty so that the unbeliever has his sin penalty paid for him, but because he doesn't believe in Christ, he doesn't receive the imputation of righteousness, and he doesn't have eternal life. 
And without perfect righteousness, he can't get into heaven. And without eternal life, which is not only a never-ending life, but also a quality of life, he, can't have, he doesn't have the capacity to enjoy heaven. So what happens at the great white throne judgment substantiates this. The dead are judged according to their works by the things that are written in the books. What's written in these books are all the things that they do. It's not their sin. Sin's paid for. Christ paid the penalty for the sin. In all actuality, it's a real substitution. It's not this sort of phony, hypothetical substitution, which Amiro came up with. It is a real substitution. Their sin is truly actually paid for. But now, what they because they didn't trust Christ and they don't possess His righteousness, God's going to show that they don't have enough righteousness to meet his absolute perfect standard. So all their good deeds are piled up. Some people's piles aren't going to go very far. Other people's piles are going to go pretty far, depending on how good and moral they were as unbelievers. They're going to have good works. But when they're all piled up, they're not going to even come close to the first tick on the ruler because man can't produce the perfect righteousness of God Isaiah 64 6 all our works of righteousness are as filthy rags not our works of unrighteousness but our works of righteousness so the dead are going to be judged according to their works and their works aren't good enough to receive perfect righteousness to measure up to perfect righteousness God's absolute standard so they can't get into heaven and they don't have eternal life. So they are condemned. Why? Because they didn't believe in Christ. Because believing in Christ is the only way to get the imputation of perfect righteousness. That is why John 3.18 says they are condemned because they did not believe in Jesus Christ. Because belief in Christ is the only way that you get perfect righteousness and eternal life. So Revelation 20.13 reads, The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Not according to sin, but according to works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. Death and Hades is referred to the place where, the holding place where all the unbelievers went between physical death and judgment. And all the unbelievers are cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The book of life refers to those who have perfect righteousness and those who had eternal life. So they are condemned because they did not possess perfect righteousness and did not have eternal life. So that resolves the issue of how Christ can truly substitute for the unbeliever and truly, fully, completely pay his penalty and why he still goes to the lake of fire. Not to pay the penalty for his sins, but because he failed to, tr to do what God said to do in trusting Christ as his Savior. And because he's not qualified to go into heaven, he goes through eternal, he remains condemned and goes into eternal condem condemnation. Okay, then we come to Hebrews 6.3. Where did I lose 6.3 in the slide? 
Well, I guess I just didn't make one. Hebrews 6.3. Quick verse. And this we will do if God permits. Wait a minute. What will we do if God permits? Remember the command? Let us press on. Let us carry on to maturity. Now, what's the problem? The problem is that the writer of Hebrews is dealing with a, 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 a readership that is at best in doubt about whether they're going to continue to grow spiritually, and at worst, they've already hit the slippery slope, and they have slid down into a uh, re- reverse of their spiritual growth. They're backslidden, and they are in complete and total carnality and rebellion against God in the worst-case scenario. So, when we come to verse 3, and the writer says, And this we will do, it's a future tense of poieo, this we will do, that is, we will press on. He qualifies it and says, if God permits. In other words, there's a real warning and danger here that we can reach a point of no return in terms of our rebelliousness where God finally allows us to sink into the pit of our own rebellion and carnality, die the sin unto death, and lose rewards and uh, whatever position or responsibility we might have otherwise had. That is the seriousness of the warning here. Says this, so he indicates this by saying, This we will do if God permits. And the word here translated if is not the normal word we would expect, which would simply be the Greek particle aeon, but it has a suffix added to it, uh, per, aeon pair, which intensifies the condition. And so what he is saying is that. Um, We can do this only if God permits. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. It's a third-class condition. That God may not allow us to reverse course and to start pursuing spiritual growth again. And now he's going to explain that. See, a lot of people say, well, wait a minute. You mean God may finally get fed up with our rebellion and just let us slide on off into self-destruction? Yes, that's true. And he lays down a principle and an explanation in verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit I'm going to go on ahead and read the next verse. And have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away. See, that's what he's been warning about all, all along. Don't fall away, but instead press on to maturity. So it, he says it's impossible for those, and then there's five categories listed, for those who have, I think I have a slide of this. Yes, I do. Those who've once been enlightened, those who've tasted the heavenly gift, those who have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, those who have tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again 
to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. In other words, there is a serious warning here that the believer can reach a point of no return in his decline into rebellion and carnality, which case God will not, uh, or it will be, uh, it appears that it will not be possible for them to reverse course, at least by any human means. And this is a complicated passage of exegesis. There's a lot of people who go to this section to try to argue that you can lose your salvation. That's not what it's talking about at all. Salvation isn't the issue here. The issue here is are you going to press on to spiritual maturity or regress in spiritual rebellion to the point where, aside from a special work of God, renewal is impossible. And that's the thrust. But we're going to need to take some time to break each phrase down so that you understand uh, what uh, what is being discussed here and where we can understand very clearly that he's talking about the fact that these are believers, not unbelievers. These are believers, and it's talking about the danger of spiritual regression. So we'll come back and look at that and also verses 7 and 8 talk about the judgment that comes to those in spiritual regression uh, through the imagery of of uh, dry earth drinking in the rain, producing fruit, and also producing thorns and briars. So we'll have to get to that next time. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged by these things, to understand how important it is to press on to spiritual maturity, to not become complacent in our spiritual life, to focus on your word, to focus on our own spiritual life and application, and making this the highest priority in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.